Bible with me, turn to the book of John. Turn to the book of John. We're going to be in chapter 11 today, chapter 11. Um, We're going to cover a huge portion of Scripture, and so you're going to have to bear with me at different times uh, that we will have to read chunks of um, of the Word of God. Uh, but before we, get, uh, before we get started, is there anyone in here who knows a man by the name of Ted Turner? Ted Turner. Uh, there's possibly a whole bunch. Um, but Ted Turner, for, there's a few of you who raised, uh, raised your hands. Ted Turner uh, was, the, it was and is the media mogul. Uh, the, the creator of CNN and TBS, uh, multi-billionaire. And recently I was just reading an article about him where he became a very outspoken atheist after high school. He was extremely committed, though, to Christianity while he was in high school and frequently talked to his youth group about the, how, the, how God, the Spirit, had told him and was encouraging him to become a missionary overseas. This is how he lived his life. He read his Bible in school. He talked to people about God. He prayed out loud for God to work and move. But at the age of 15... His younger sister, Mary Jane, who was 12, contracted lupus. She she contracted lupus, which is a degenerative tissue disease. She was riddled with pain, constantly vomiting from her illness, and screams filled their house every single day. Ted regularly would come home from school and he would sit at his sister's bedside holding her hand until she or he fell asleep that night. He prayed every day that God would heal her, that she would see recovery. But after years of of misery, Mary Jane succumbed to her disease and she passed away. Ted was interviewed several years after this happened, and he recalled something that his father had said at the dinner table. He said, I was taught as a child that God was love and that God was powerful. And he said, and I could not understand how someone so innocent should be made or allowed to suffer. He even said that his father remarked following the death of his sister that if that is the type of God he is, I want nothing to do with him. Ted's father, overwhelmed by grief, on March 5th of 1963, stepped into his bedroom following breakfast with his wife and his children and he shot himself. Overwhelmed by grief, he killed himself, and he was only 53 years of age. And that sealed the deal for Ted. And Ted spoke for the very first time the exact phrase in which he remembered his father saying, if that's the type of God he is, I don't want anything to do with him. Now maybe you're sitting in here and you're like, I don't. Uh, You told me who Ted Turner was, but I don't really recognize or don't really resonate. Well, what about this? C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors and theologians, the one who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the the most well-known children's book series in the world. 
C.S. Lewis lost his wife to a painful bout with cancer, and he wrote this in his book, A Grief Observed. I cannot understand why God is always there when things are going well. Telling you what he expects of you. But go to him when your need is desperate and when all other help is vain. And what do you find but a door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that silence, you may as well just turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence really becomes. Why is God so present a commander in our times of prosperity, but so very absent a help in our time of trouble? C.S. Lewis penned those words years after he had come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Years afterwards. And that, that quote by C.S. Lewis never makes it on, onto anyone's favorite C.S. Lewis quotes page. You know, C.S. Lewis made it through and his faith was ultimately strengthened in it. But he was articulating what I believe many of us feel or have felt. Have you ever found yourself there? In your despair? In your hurt? In your pain? In your frustration? In your fill in the blank? God, where are you? Why are you not listening to me? How come you're not helping? When are you going to show up? A lot of us, I've talked to some in this room, I know in my own life we, we have gone through dark chapters. We've thought some of these exact things and we've shut ourselves up saying I'm not allowed to feel this way because real Christians don't feel like this. Church, I, I'm going to be really honest with you this morning. This last week has just been a spiritually challenging week in our home. And there have been moments where I have thought these exact things over the last week. God, where are you? Are you not listening to me? How come you're not showing up? Why does everything seem so dry? Church, we're, we're all going to go through things where we feel pain. We're all going to go through things where we suffer, where we may feel frustrated. And when we're in situations like that, we must make one of three choices and how we're going to respond. The first, we could lose our faith. We could conclude, just like Ted Turner did, that he's not really there. That, that, that God has never been there. And if he is, then you don't want anything to do with him. That's one response, one, one choice you could make in your pain. The second is to isolate your mind for the thing that troubles you. To just gloss over it. To just refuse to even address it or to think about it exactly like C.S. Lewis talked about in his book, A Grief Observed. You know, many people have shut off parts of their hearts and minds to the Christian faith and just refuse to think about it. Why? Because they're afraid that their faith will not be able to stand those questions. That their faith would not be able to make it through the pain, the suffering, the hurt, the trial. Why? Because it would become too painful for them. And the result, and the result 
is a superficial faith that doesn't consume your whole being. Why? Why? Because you love a God, or you can't love a God unless you love him with your whole entire being. So you become the one who has a superficial faith. You just don't think deeply anymore. Or there's the third one, the third response. And that, that's to, to press deeper into the things of God. To press deeper. Meaning that you let the questions, you let the situations, the trials, the circumstances drive you deeper in your relationship with God. I'll tell you there have been times in my life when I have asked the hard question. There have been times in my life where I have struggled. There have been times in my life where I've even doubted the word of God. But I will tell you right now that it was in those moments that my faith grew the most and my relationship with God became so much sweeter. It was Charles Spurgeon who said that doubt and pain are like a foot poised to move forwards or backwards. He meant that you could pick up that foot and walk backwards into unbelief and that's entirely possible. But you'll never grow in your faith until you pick up that foot and you start moving. That's what Charles Spurgeon was talking about. That faith is never going to grow. It was also Charles Spurgeon that said those that dive into the sea of affliction will always bring up rare pearls. In the same sermon he spoke it. And he was saying that, that the immensity of God's love can often be known best in the depths of one's despair. In the depths of one's pain and, and hurt. We won't be able to know the, the depth of, of love of God until we've cried out to him. Saying, my pain is deep, God, but you are greater than my pain. You're bigger than my pain. And so my question this morning for us, church is what do you do when you feel frustrated? What do, you, what do you do when you hurt? What do you do when you're in pain from a situation? What do you do when it feels like God's not there, when he's not answering you? And maybe for some of you in this room, the question is not that extreme. You may not be here today on the verge of, of losing your faith, but things maybe are just not going according to your plans. Anyone ever find themselves in that place? All three of you, great. Your friends are getting married, but you're not. Your coworker is getting the promotion, and you've been working longer for it, and you didn't get it. Maybe, maybe you can't have kids, or, or maybe you're approaching retirement, and things are not looking good. Or maybe your kids didn't turn out right and you thought, God, by this time I was supposed to be enjoying life with grandkids. Or maybe you're in your 40s or 50s and your spouse walked out. Or someone close to you passed away. Or, or you got news from the doctor that you didn't really want to hear. And you're sick. God, why? Why aren't you coming through for me? I just don't understand, how can this be your perfect plan? How, God? I want us to look this morning at a passage of Scripture that I, I believe wholeheartedly these, these people probably asked these same questions. That they probably thought these same things. 
And it's the story uh, of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus falling ill. And so if you would, read with me in verse number 1 of chapter 11. And I want us to see how Christ responds in this situation. Verse number 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus is ill. And so the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now I want us to stop right there. Jesus had a close personal relationship with this family. And when Lazarus was sick, it was completely natural for them to bring their need to Jesus. It was expected. It was expected that if the miraculous ways in which Jesus met the needs of so many others, that he would meet their need also. But please note, please note, the love of Jesus, church, don't miss this. The love of Jesus does not separate us from common necessity or common infirmity within man. Why? Because we are still men and women and children. We're still human. So just because he loves us doesn't mean that we're separated from common necessity and common infirmities. Okay? Look now at verse number 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place where he was. You know, if you read a few verses ahead from this very section right here, you will see that the intentional two-day delay by Jesus would cost Lazarus his life. And John, in this whole picture here, stops and he reminds us that Jesus genuinely loved these sisters and this brother. Look back at verse number four. But when Jesus heard of it, he said that it doesn't lead to death, for, but it is for the glory of God. Look at verse five. So now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus, pointing out each individual. This is not Jesus just loved the family. This is Jesus had a close personal relationship with each one of these individuals, and he's expressing, and John is reminding us. Now, church, it's an important reminder to us that the testing of one's faith was not the denial of Christ's love. Did you guys catch that? The testing of your faith is not the denial of Christ's love. But it does seem strange, does it not? It seems strange that Jesus did not immediately act upon a great need. You know, the delay was probably mystifying to the disciples. Like, Jesus, why are you not going to go? Like, we, we have to walk to get there. So why are we not leaving now? It was probably agonizing for Mary and Martha that Jesus didn't show up just like that. You know, it wasn't that Jesus loved this family, but he waited. He loved them so he waited. Look back with me. Look back at verse number six. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So he waited. He loved them so he waited. Now look at verse number seven with me. And it says this, 
Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea, to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, because of the opposition of the religious leaders, Judea was a dangerous place for Jesus. But nevertheless, even though it was dangerous, Jesus was willing to go despite the warnings of the disciple. What did he say? He responded by saying, I still have work to do. I, and without getting too deep into the theological implications here, Jesus was saying when he mentioned the 12 hours and the day and the night, he was saying, my father has given me a job to do and so no one will take my life until it's my father's will. I have to complete what he's calling me here to do. And if you remember the life of Jesus back to even when he was a child, when he ran off into the temple as a child and his mother found him, what did he say? I must be about my father's business. Jesus was continuing that same thought here. Now look at verse number 11 with me. And after these are saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. I go to awaken him. Now the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, will he, re or he will recover. It, the, the disciples still don't get it. Oh, Lord, he's, he's going to wake up. It'll be completely fine. But look at, at 13. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Lazarus has died in verse 15 and for your sake I am glad the first time I read that I was like Jesus is glad that somebody died and I was completely confused but he says for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him and so stop there you know Jesus uses a familiar metaphor here of sleep to describe the death of Lazarus. And even in the death of a dear friend, Jesus could be glad because he was certain of the outcome. He was certain of what was, what was going to happen. I have come to learn. I've come to learn in, in the young 32, um, almost 33 um, years of life, that God often permits us to pass through profound darkness. And he often permits us to, to, to pass into deeper mysteries of pain so that we may prove more perfectly his power in our life. He allows for those things. So look what happens in verse number 16. And so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. And now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been um, in the tomb four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, now don't miss this. Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now Jesus said to her, no, hold on real quick. I'm just going to pause right here. Do not take that verse out of context, okay? 
That's where the prosperity gospel has come from. Whatever you ask God, he will give to you, okay? That's not what's happening here. She's, she's saying, I know that you're still God. I know that you're still God and you're working things out. Now look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. But when she had when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to Jesus, uh, to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here yet again, repeating the exact phrase verbatim that her sister used, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her, and the Jews that had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. I want you to highlight that in your Bible. I want you to underline it. I want you to start, do something that you will never forget. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the English Bible, Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five, 35. And we're going to stop there. I want to focus for just a moment on how Jesus responds to the two sisters here in this story. Because I think that the teaching here in this story and the answer to our question hinges on these two reactions that Jesus gave to Mary and Martha. Now Mary and Martha made the exact same statement verbatim to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Jesus responded to each of them differently. In completely different ways. And this passage of scripture is teaching us that when we're disappointed, when we're hurt, when we're frustrated, when we're in pain, we have need of two things. We have need of two things. The first, to Martha, Jesus gave a theological answer. Jesus gave a theological answer. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus did not claim, church, don't miss this. Jesus did not claim to have resurrection and life. Or that he understood secrets about resurrection and life. Instead, Jesus dramatically said, I am the resurrection and the life. To know Jesus is to know resurrection. To know Jesus is to know life. To have Jesus, though. To have, to be a part of Christ's family is to have resurrection and life with inside of us. And so Jesus boldly challenges Martha to trust and to believe that he was the source of eternal life. He was presenting himself as the champion over death. And while humanity in fear generally fears death. The Christian need not fear dying. Why? Because of the instant transition that happens from 
the old life to the new that's only found in Jesus Christ. Church, we must believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he can do. But does that mean, right, that the question then is posed, does that mean that he would not raise Lazarus unless Martha believed? Does that mean that? No. The answer is absolutely not. If we look back at the very beginning of the chapter, Jesus had already determined to wake him up before he even saw Martha's reaction, before he had even been in her presence. And I want to stop here for just a moment because I think we need, we need to be built a very brief theological case for suffering. For su- why suffering? Because there are three important truths that we learn in the Bible about why people suffer. Okay? The first one, and they're going to hit the screen as we come to them. The first one is that suffering is the result of the curse of death on sin. Suffering occurs because of sinful behavior. Okay? God created the world, God created the world with no suffering in Adam and Eve's day. There was no suffering. But because of sin and and rebellion, that rebellion brought God's curse upon the earth. And and most of the objections that are raised against God about suffering are built on the assumption that we as humans deserve good things. That's the assumption from people. And the objective against why God allows something, that we're owed something that is good and God is unjust for not giving us the good thing. Well, guess what? The Bible takes a completely opposite approach to that truth. We don't deserve good things. We are a race that is born as sinners because of rebellion. And I I believe, and I, I appreciated what you said in the book of Romans, Melinda. Romans is one of my favorite places to go to look at theological terms and what they mean because Paul expounded greatly upon them. You want to know what Paul said in Romans 6, 23? For the wages of sin is death. That's what Paul said. The wages that we, we deserve death because we're sinners. And the fact that God has given us a space to repent and to teach children to repent, that's unspeakable grace. Unspeakable grace. If you go back, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And the verse doesn't stop there. There's a little itty bitty comma, or at least there should be in your Bible. And it says, but... But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's grace. That comma, that but in that verse, that's the grace, the unspeakable grace of Jesus Christ. And when something bad happens to us, instead of saying, why me? Believer, you should be saying, why not me? Man, try praying that. Why not me, Lord? Why not bring the suffering upon me so that you get the glory? Truth. Suffering in the world is the result of the curse of death for our sins. Now, I want to just kind of pause before I move on to the second thing. I want to clarify something to you. We must never... 
never look at someone's situation and automatically tie a particular sin to somebody's suffering. I'm not saying that we can't suffer because of sinfulness, right? Because of our own choices or the, the choices of somebody. We can, but we should never automatically assume that someone who's suffering is living in some egregious sin because of that suffering. Uh, the book of Hebrews tells it very well. God chastens those that he loves. God chastens. He corrects. He allows suffering in one's life. Why? For his good or for our good and for his glory. And we're going to see that in just a moment. So all suffering in the world is the result of the curse of death on sin. Now the second thing is that God in his love and mercy has reversed the curse by suffering in our place. He's reversed the curse by suffering in our place. You know, the only true innocent sufferer ever in the history of mankind was Jesus Christ. He was the only human to live free from the curse, and yet he voluntarily died anyways. Voluntarily. And when he did, church, when he died, when he was beaten and bruised, when, when a crown of thorns was placed upon his head, when he was nailed to a cross, he overturned the curse of death when he said it is finished. And he started the healing process. The healing can only begin by canceling our sin and debt and bring reconciliation between me and God. That's why I love what Paul said in Romans 5.1. It's through Christ I have been justified so that I can live peaceably with God. I can live peaceably with him. But it only came through justification, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then, and only then, will it start to affect our relationships with the people around us, with the people in our family, with our spouses. You know, one, one day, our bodies will also know the healing touch when they're resurrected to perfection, right, without pain, and that will eventually extend to the entire world. Listen, if you, if you want to know more about what that looks like, and what, what are the implications of resurrection life? I would, I would encourage you to join us on, on April 13th because we're going to start looking at the last few chapters of the book of Revelation and what it means to have resurrection life in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to see Christ reign here on the earth? What does it mean that there will be a new heaven and a new earth? What does that even look like? So I would encourage you to come out because it will God will establish resurrection life upon this earth and it will be fresh and it will be new and it will be holy. And then the third thing is that God uses what I'm going to call redemptive suffering for his glory and for our good. For his glory and our good. You know, there are some things I've, I've probably had to learn this the hard way, and, and some of you will probably resonate with, with this very thing. There are some things in this life that God can demonstrate better about himself to the world through our pain than he can in any other way. But then there are also things that God can teach us about himself through our pain better than he can in any other way. 
There are some people that I, I've talked with that, that balk at this last point. All pain for God's glory, for our good. I hear people, at one point I, I was counseling someone um, a couple of years ago and I was trying to explain this concept to them in Scripture and they were like, well, what about the Holocaust? And the, the flesh inside of me was like, like thinking, well, what about it? Like I was waiting, waiting for something more than that. And then the person comes at me, well, what about September 11th? And the attacks on America and the lives that were lost, all of those were for God's glory and for our good? And I just kind of sat there and the individual was like, how, how can you say that the Holocaust was in any way good for Jews? And as I sat there for a moment... I thought to myself, this individual forgot the very first truth. That we live in a sin-cursed world. You forgot the first truth about suffering. We, we, we live in, in, in a place that as a result of the curse of death is suffering. Is suffering. And just like this church, just like the sun will come up and shine indiscriminately on good and bad people, the curse of death will indiscriminately affect all people, uh, some of whom are exceptionally bad where others seem innocent. But the, the truth, really, the, the larger scheme of things is that none of us are really innocent. Nobody is innocent. Think of a hundred people standing in an area outside, both good and bad, followers and non-followers, believers and unbelievers. When the sun comes up, every single one of them will be warmed. Every single one of them will be warmed. Why? Because God does not individually shine the sun on a few people and leave the others out. The curse of death will rise up over them, and the same thing will happen. It indiscriminately affects everybody. Everybody. And we cannot come to a place where we say that it's unfair because what is fair is that we deserve death. That's what's fair. What's fair for us, but for the believer, church, for the believer, the best news is that God has taken the sting out of death and suffering and he's promised to us now that our suffering is for our good and for his glory. It's for our good and his glory. Amen, church? Amen. Listen, that's why Paul, that's why Paul said that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Why? Because we're supposed to be transformed and reformed into the image of God. And I love though, Paul didn't stop there. Paul went to Ephesians chapter 1 and he said that God works all things according to the counsel of his will to the counsel of his will so that we would resound with praise for God's glory. We would resound in praise for God's glory. And that is why Joseph, the man in the Old Testament that we looked at several weeks, that's why Joseph could stand before his brothers who, who had committed a grave injustice against him and saying what you meant for evil, God meant for good.
I've experienced in my life so many times how God has repurposed bad situations for his glory. How he's repurposed relationships that I once had and made them something good to glorify him out of them. And then this story here of Mary and Martha, this plays out here for them. We're going to see a pattern here of that suffering and how Christ brings it about for good and for his glory. I want us to read just a few more verses and we're going to start to land the plane here. Look at verse number 38 with me. And Jesus deeply moved again. There's that phrase, deeply moved. He came to the tomb And it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Look at verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew, and I knew you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Look at verse 43. And when he had said these things, he cried out loud with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. Let's stop there. You know, there's a, there's a textual thing here that we might miss. We might have a tendency to miss and gloss over when we read this. There's a phrase that was used a couple of times which does not translate well into our English language. The phrase is deeply moved. He said it twice. He said it in verse 33, and he said it again in verse 38. You know, scholars say that that phrase deeply moved is a terribly deficient translation. English has no word or phrase for the Greek phrase here. It is embri meame is the phrase that it is. And it's a connotation of animals snorting in anger like it's ready to charge. The phrase here indicates not sympathy so much as Jesus preparing to enter the ring like a wrestler about to prepare for a contest. He groans because the violent tyranny of death which he has overcome now stands before him. Do you see, church? Do you see what's happening here in Scripture? He's about to enter the ring with one of mankind's greatest enemies, death. But do you know what else is interesting about this? John points out in verse number 47 that this event, the raising of Lazarus, triggers the event that leads to his own death. And the fight that started here in chapter 11 with Jesus yelling and shouting at death ends eight chapters later in the crucifixion with Jesus going full body contact with death on the cross. He absorbed the the curse that we deserve and he snapped the neck of death through his own death. You know, the only way Jesus could interrupt the funeral of Lazarus was to start his own funeral procession. That was it. And as I I stand up here 
Um, is there anyone in here who um, likes action movies? You like like guns and blowing up and like all like cars smashing into each other. Like you you like action movies? Yes. Okay. So I like I like action movies. And as a guy, I sit here and I read this and I love this because I've always heard Jesus presented in soft, feminine terms. And this man here in scripture is shouting at the greatest enemy to ever face humankind. And he loved those people enough to destroy it even when it was going to take his own life. And then, and then look what happens in verse number 44, guys. Because this is where it gets good. The man who died came out and his hands and his feet were bound with linen stripes, and his face was wrapped in clothes, and Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Now, if you remember, Jesus was warned by Martha not to open the tomb. Don't roll away that stone because he had been in there for four days and his body was going to smell. But Jesus said to do it. Why? Because when they did, they would encounter not the stench of death, but the glory of God. The glory of God, church. You've got to notice the contrast between the stench of death and the glory of God. You know, she was expecting decomposition of her brother's body, but he knew we would find the glory of recomposition in a whole body. Jesus knew it. And follow me here because I think we see a picture of how God works in all pain and works it for our good and for his glory. Don't miss this, church. The curse of death and suffering touches us and we expect to find decay, but God works behind the scenes so that we do not find decay, but we find recomposition, something that is whole, something fresh, something new. And we sit here sometimes and we see these things upon the earth earth where we go through difficult times and we wonder where God is but then just a few years later down the road the road God rolls away that stone and we saw what he was doing the whole time you guys ever been there where you were walking through something you're like why is this happening in a year or two years or five years later you're like God it makes sense it makes perfect sense even when I don't see it you're working even when I don't feel it you're working Something bad happens to you and you figure out, you, you can't figure out what God is doing and how he's using it for good and then it happens. But at the same time, church, there are also going to be times in your life where he doesn't roll away that stone. He doesn't roll away that stone here on the earth. And, and you never quite figure out what exactly is God doing? Well, one day you're going to step into eternity and there you'll see it. There you'll see it. That's the bigger picture, right, church? Amen. The, the bigger picture is eternity. 
rest assured passages just like this in scripture assure us that he will roll back the stone on all suffering and on all death and when he does we will be so overwhelmed at his glory that we will fall flat before him at all that he has done in and through us and what he's doing behind the scenes and I know that we can't always see it right now I know we can't always see it but if you can already see a purpose for some of your pain If you can see some purpose right now in some of your pain, don't you think we should give it enough time and space to see the bigger picture for eternity? Don't you think we should walk in that for the fact that Paul called our our problems here a light and momentary affliction? Man, Paul was beaten nine times. He was shipwrecked multiple times. He was thrown in prison multiple times. He was bit by venomous snakes. And he says, all of this is light momentary affliction. Man. Paul also said that our our pain was like birth pangs. Like a mother giving birth. Imagine with me for a moment that you're in a hospital room. And in the room next to you on one side, there is someone writhing in pain. And you can hear it. What emotions does that stir up in you? Hearing someone in the, in the final throes of death. Honestly, it's, it's somewhat depressing, if I could, just, if I could be honest with you. I've sat at people's bedsides as, they, as they've gone. People who were ready to go and they passed quietly where others were, were writhing in pain. Now imagine with me for just a moment that the person in that room is a woman giving birth. She, she's writhing in pain, but the emotion is different, Right? The emotion is completely different. Why? We feel sympathy, but even in the pain, there's joy because you know that after the pain, the pain that is temporary, soon it will be swallowed up by a child, by new life that comes. Listen, pain and suffering for the believer is like a birth pang. It's not like the despairs of crying for the death. The suffering in this life is going to be real, but our next life is for forever. Amen, church. Our next life is for forever. And in the light of forever, our pain in this moment begins to disappear. It begins to disappear. Now, before we end, I want us to go back for just a moment and pick up Jesus' reaction to Mary. Because it's, it's very important. To Martha, he gave a theological answer. But look at verse 32. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. The exact same thing that Martha said, Mary said, but we see different details here. Jesus' response is different. You know, I've always thought 
Um, the tears here of Jesus were a little odd. Did Jesus not know that 10 minutes from now, Lazarus is going to be out of the grave and they're going to be reunited? Like, yes, he did. He knew it from the very beginning of the chapter. Well, then why did he just not say to Mary, don't cry, I'm going to fix it. Don't, don't cry. Why weep, Mary? The issue is going to be resolved in just a few moments. Well, I've come to, to believe, and now my understanding of this scripture is vastly different than where it was. But Jesus was giving us a, a picture of how he goes through suffering with us. How he walks with us. You know, even when, when Jesus knows the pain is temporary, he knows what it feels like for you. He weeps with you. And that's how I've come to know that somebody loves me. When they weep, when I weep. When they stand next to me and, and say, God's going to work you through this. I'll pray with you. Let me, let me be here with you. Let me shoulder this with you. That's how I know when someone loves they, They've wept when I wept. And just like that, ten minutes to Jesus is no different than ten thousand years. And he can already see the beautiful end of every one of our stories. He already sees that suffering is going to be swallowed up in the glorious resurrection that occurs. But pastor, I lost I lost somebody. Pastor, I'm walking through a divorce. Pastor, I don't know what's going on with my kids. Pastor, I have anxiety. I deal with depression. Pastor, I got really bad news from the doctor today. I have a child who, who won't stop thinking about suicide. I have, a, I have a kid who's on drugs. I have a spouse addicted. painful, isn't it? Church, it's painful when we have to walk through those things. Sometimes it causes us to feel lonely. Like nobody's there. Like you don't know where to go. You don't know what to do. We're reminded in Scripture that we, we need a theological answer. But not just a theological answer. We need the reaction of a friend. We need somebody to walk alongside of us. And when you're, you're sitting in here, maybe you're like, I don't have that person. Guess what? Christ is that person for you as a child of God. I always, always thought it was strange. We used to sing this song, I am a friend of God. And I was slightly bothered by it, right? Because I, my, my perception of friend was vastly different. But guess what? He calls me friend. He calls me, I have somebody to, to walk through the throes of pain and suffering alongside of me. And there was, a, there was a song that we used to sing when I was a child, and it was a song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. He took our sin and our sorrow, and He made it His very own, is what the song says. And He feels, He feels it. 
But it says that he bore our burdens at Calvary and he suffered and he died alone. Every shattered dream, church, every sorrow, every pain, every conflict he feels, every broken heart, he sees each tear that falls. Do you know there was another time in Jesus' life when he wept and nobody was there? The Gospels tell us of the, the time of the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus wept with such great anguish that he was sweating droplets of blood. He asked the disciples to stay awake and pray with him, but they fell asleep. And you know, we don't think of this very often except for maybe uh, around Good Friday or, or when we talk about, uh, talk about Jesus being crucified. Do you know, he died friendless and godless. You guys tracking with me? Christ died friendless and godless. His Father, the Heavenly Father, turned away from Him. And it's because of that that I, I believe that He will never forsake me. It's because of that that I believe that He could never forsake me. He died so that all that could separate me from God would be gone. So that, that God could hear my pain and that he would weep with me in my pain. That he would never turn his face away from me because Jesus wrestled with death. And he took the full force of its sting and it sourced my sin and he put it away forever. So whatever you're walking through in here today, church, whatever, you're, whatever pain whatever hurt, whatever brokenness you have in here today, whatever offense you have in here, whatever sickness you have in here, we need to understand the theological answer and we simply need to know that he's there. That he's there. That he's present. That he's fully committed. He's fully in control. So church, what if Jesus appeared to us right now in this very moment of time? What if he stepped up onto this stage and he said, whatever you've gone through and whatever you're going through and whatever you're about to walk into is for my glory. And what if he stepped on this stage and he assured each and every one of you by name that he loved you? What if he said that he saw you weeping in your pain and that he was fully in control? Would you be able to endure Whatever it is that you are going through, would you be able to endure if Christ stood upon this stage and said those things to you? Of course you could. Of course you could. But just as Jesus' apparent absence here in Scripture did not indicate at all that he lost control or that he faltered in his love for you or for me or for them, his apparent absence in our life does not indicate that either. But Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Church, he is there. He is there, church. What if you're in day two? Right? You feel that Jesus hasn't shown up. Or, or maybe you're in day four. And Lazarus is completely dead. He's in the tomb. Hang on, church. 
hang on because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, church, and his delay is for his glory and for our good. We worship God and we believe at the feet of the one who has the power over death. Don't ever forget that. Do you realize the the, the raw power that the, the Bible shows us about who Jesus is? That he can bring anyone out of the grave. You know, one theologian wrote that that if Jesus had not specified Lazarus' name, every person in a tomb would have walked out of Jerusalem when he said, arise and come out. There's the power of God, and he walks beside you, church. And he's with you, and he's at work in you. But the challenge I want to leave us with is this, if he can do all of those things, if he can do all of those things, and he's with us, and he gives us peace and strength, what kind of worship reaction, what kind of worship reaction should that solicit from us? How should we respond to him? Are we really going to resist in here today? Are we really going to continue to push him away because of something that's occurred? Guess what? He's the only one that can overcome your greatest enemy, Christ. You know, the death rate is still 100%. That has not changed. Do you want to live in eternity with Jesus Christ? Because he's the only hope that we have. Maybe you're in here and you've doubted Christ's love. Or maybe you've doubted his power. And maybe you just need to get alone with God for a moment and pour out your heart to him and say, sorry, God, forgive me for my doubt. Forgive me for the way that I have strayed away from you. Forgive me for my lack of interest in holy and good things. Forgive me, God. Do something in me. I want to challenge each and every one of you in here this morning to do something. There's a challenge for each one of us. Maybe you're in here and you don't know Jesus Christ. Listen, just because you sit in church every Sunday doesn't mean that you have a personal relationship with him. So maybe you're in here today and you need to come to the saving knowledge of God's grace in your life. You need to take a step out and say, okay, God, I'm giving my whole life up to you because I don't want to live this way anymore. Because I need peace in my life. Because I need to be whole. Because I want to spend eternity with you. So God, I'm a sinner. Save me. Save me today. Maybe you're in here though. Maybe, just maybe, you're like, Pastor, I've been a believer for a long time. Well, that's great. But but maybe you're not as close to God as you should be. Maybe your prayer life's not where it needs to be. Maybe maybe your quiet time, the the way that you study and commune with God is is not what it needs to be. And so your challenge today is, is to dedicate time. To get alone with God and say, I want to be obedient. This is not, Lord, just give me the strength. Because guess what? We have to respond to the truth that we know. We have to take steps of obedience. And when we do, we'll be blessed by God. We'll be blessed. Or maybe you're in here and you just need, you need to encourage a brother or sister. 
in their walk. Maybe you need to come alongside somebody who's hurting. And so 